recording? Oh, yeah, I'm recording. Oh, gosh. Okay. This is all off the record for me. All oh, right. shame. Yeah, it is a shame. All right, let's do it. Let's. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Goulet Pencast, where fountain pens are still a thing. I am Brian Goulet. And I am Drew Brown. And we are here from Goulet Pens to deliver this casual and informal, tangential and extraneous, superfluous and extemporaneous fountain pen show, where today we're only taking Q&A questions. We're not talking about all this other stuff, mainly because we're having to record this in advance. I am not available this this week that you are viewing this so drew and i doubled up and we recorded one in advance just for you and so since we can't predict the future and know what is timely to talk about <laughs> at the time we're recording this we figured why don't we just shoot like an all q a question and answer some of these questions that we've been sitting on for a while so that's exactly what we're going to do so we're going to load it up and just pound out some high quality top shelf answers to your pen questions are you ready to do this, Drew? There, mar- I will say a marathon. <laughs> they will be answers. How high they are on the shelf is up mm. to interpretation. I think you all should, as viewers, set your expectations as high as they can go and then expect them to be exceeded. I think that's what you should oh do. Oh, my. Yeah. Look what he's doing. Yeah, get ready. This is going to be this is going to be enlightening. I don't know other, any other way to say it. You will probably... All right. You will probably feel transformed by the time you've watched this whole Q and A. I don't want to overhype it, but it's it's probably going to be the best thing you've ever seen and will see in your lifetime. Is that overhyping it, Drew, or do you think that's pretty accurate? I mean, it's possible that it will be if uh, if if depending on how their life has gone up to this point. I sincerely hope this isn't the best thing you've ever seen. <laughs> But if it is, you're welcome. Drew, I'm trying to... It's I'm only uphill psych, from here. I'm trying to psych you and me up so that we make sure to deliver the best thing that they've ever seen. Yes! That's exactly what we're going to do. All right, we're going to start this off. I'm going to ask the first question from Smolstitches. That's right. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. S-Molstitches? I don't no, know. No, small, like small. small. Small stitches. Okay. Yeah. Should the slit between the tines of your fountain pen nib be perfectly centered... Is there a reason that it may not be? Um, basically, yes, it should be centered. Will it function if it's not? Perhaps. You know, that's like asking if the wheels on your car should be s- straight and round. It's like, well, I mean, it, it might function if it's not, but I, it, ideally it definitely should be. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely there for a reason. And yeah. it, if it's off then it's likely that it will not perform as it should. The nib and the feed are kind of smushed together so that they can create an ink channel, right? And there is stuff going on that allows that to happen. On the nib side, the thing going on is the slit. And on the feed side, the thing going on is the ink channel. And those two things need to be aligned. They together create a Voltron of ink flow when they combine. And that's what you want. And if you know, you've got your your ink channel here and your nib slit here, then yeah, maybe some ink will kind of smush over and find its way where it needs to be, but it's not going to be ideal. And you could uh, have interrupted flow, no flow at all. Um, it really just depends, but it's supposed to be mated up. So if your nib is cut um, off center, not only is it very likely that the tines, the slit in the tine won't be 
right directly above the ink channel, but it could also mean that you've got one chunk of tipping material significantly larger than the other, and that creates a whole nother host of issues. So yes, it should be straight down the middle. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that is the intention of every fountain pen manufacturer is to have it look like that. Now, sometimes there are manufacturing mistakes that happen and all that super, super few and far between, but every now and then one will slip through and that may be the case, uh, but it really probably shouldn't be like that. Um, now, Drew, technically, if you have it, if you have the cut for the slit going straight in the middle of the tines, but then it goes off center from there, and then theoretically, if your feed was equally off-centered, that would still probably work, right? Maybe? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's that alignment, that proper flow, the capillary action. It's got it's everything's got to match up, and having it straight down the middle is the most reliable way to do that. So yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you can actually take a peek if you've got a nib with a breather hole in there. You can actually kind of peek into the breather hole, and you can see the ink channel, and that could be a good indication of mm-hmm. how accurate it is uh, in alignment. Yeah, and in fact, the breather hole. You know, it's arguable, but it makes a very nominal difference into the actual ink flow itself. That just that hole on the nib. And in fact, you know, the pen that I just pulled up here, the Diplomat Arrow, does not have a breather hole. Um, but you know, the Pilot 823 here, eh, I can't get super close in, but um, it does have a breather hole. That breather hole is really just to give you a place to stop when you're grinding, not you, the manufacturer, a place to stop when you're cutting the slit down the nib. So you have a dedicated place. Otherwise it would, you know, it could possibly end up in maybe different lengths and distances and stuff, especially old school, the way they used to do it, it wasn't automated, it was manual. So they would do it by hand and just kind of like have a grinding wheel and then just kind of push the nib down into the grinding wheel. And theoretically you could go further or not as far or whatever. So for consistency's sake, if you have a little breather hole punched in there before you do the, the cut for the slit, it just gives you a nice consistent place to be able to do it. And then it makes it visually, and it's easier. You can kind of see through that breather hole when you're aligning the nib, you can see that, you know, um, uh, feed channel, you know, through the breather hole, it just makes it easier. So that's kind of why it's there. But And there, there are plenty of uh, manufacturers that still do it manually like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you Absolutely. know, some of the places we visited do it that, that, way, yeah. do it that way. More so in like the gold nibs and stuff, the really the, high, the higher end stuff, you know, just making sure. So yeah, there you go. Good question. All right. Great. Drew. All right, next up, Brian, we have a question from Torpedo Monkey. Of course we do. So this is this is going to require a very definitive answer with zero speculation. Torpedo Monkey demands an answer to the question, why has Kaweco still not released a piston filler Kaweco Sport? That's because one has not been made. <gasps> there you go. Mind blown. Um, <sighs> I wish I had deeper insights into specifically why i mean not every pen maker has a piston filler it's not like assumed that any pen is going to be made as a piston so why does any manufacturer not have any given model as a piston because they haven't made it that way why does anybody do anything yeah um i mean i think it'd be (laughs) kind of cool i can see some challenges with it specifically because the sport is a pretty thin bodied pen and it's a very short pen so you already right off the bat don't have a lot of room to work with especially if you're trying to work with the cap and have it post and all this kind of stuff it's going to end up being a teeny teeny tiny little piston without much ink capacity so will they do that i would be kind of surprised if they did because frankly it would make much more sense to take a larger pen you know just a size like i don't know the other um the Kuwaitos, like the uh the percale 
yeah, the Percaeo. It's got a, it fits a full size converter. It's a larger body. You know, to take something more of that size and make it a piston would make a lot more sense. I really would be surprised if we saw a sport with a piston. But I mean, yeah, it'd be cool to see that. I like piston pens, so I'd love to see it. You know, but, Brian, do you think that Caveco is the m- most well known fountain pen brand that does not have a piston filler? Um, no, probably not. Especially because when you think about the price range that most of those pens sell for, they don't sell in a range where you would expect to see a lot of pistons. I mean, think about any, even any steel nib pen, a piston is more the exception than the rule. Um, Piston mechanisms are inherently more complicated, a lot more parts, more engineering, a lot of different things. So these days you tend to only see pistons mostly on gold nib pens with some exceptions like Twisby and Noodler's. Um, but it's just, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there to try and fit a reliable piston filling mechanism on a pen that size and that price. So I'm not really surprised that we don't see one. And I think if we did see one, we would see it in the hundred dollar plus price range, most likely, um, even from a, a, what is generally known as a more affordable brand like Aveco. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, that pretty much is it. I think that's all I was going to say about that. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, we'll keep our ears open. And if we hear anything, we'll let you know. All right, Drew. This is a very simple question. Is EIK best engineered pens? That's it. It's really not even a question. It's kind of a demand. No, it's not really. But So uh, Izzy is demanding you tell the best engineered pens. Well, I have some thoughts for Izzy. Mm. Um, and it was pretty fascinating. Because, so I'm basing best engineered pens off of, like, a very physical nature um not so much how well they write because you could very easily say that you know nib and flow and feed engineering is what they're talking about i'm taking it in a different uh, direction i'm thinking more about the whole pen engineering more of a physical design aspect so um one of the first brands that popped into my head was edison specifically because we've had the opportunity brian to visit their site uh you own uh I think more than one occasion, um, myself once, and the attention to detail that I know that the Edison Pen Company takes in creating their pens um, is huge. And seeing the amount of handwork that goes into there, knowing how minute their measurements are and how specific their measurements are, it was a really fascinating thing to see. And every time I hold one of those pens now, I might just be because of my perspective, I look at it and I know kind of what went into it. And I know for a fact that they take a ton of time and, and intentional effort and they also have very very high standards i know like they're brian gray and you know his team there at the edison pen company are not okay with anything less than perfect so edison popped into my head and mm-hmm. i would probably say the same thing about a number of you know small batch manufacturers they're able to take the time and be really you know uh uh yeah you know they have uh what's the word i'm looking for um and discerning yeah, there you go. Be very, be very discerning with uh, their final product. Uh, Lamy has to be on the list. They have been up at the top of the engineering side of things in the fountain pen realm for years and years and years. You can't not include Lamy when you talk about well-engineered pens, the 2000 specifically. I know we talk about that pen a lot on the pencast. Oh, yeah. But it is a marvel of fountain pen engineering, and it's popular for a very, very good reason. Even I mean, if you, they, even if it's Lamy has specifically won design and engineering awards for the building that they built for their engineers to engineer their pens. That's that's how 
remarkable yeah. your engineering is. Yeah, you you can't talk about engineering and fountain pens without talking about Lamy. Yeah. Every, everything they have is just pure and simple engineering, and they take a lot of pride in that. And that's one of the main reasons they occupy the popular space in the fountain pen industry that they occupy is because of their engineering. Um, and then Twisby has marvelous engineering as well. The most fascinating thing about Twisby is how well their engineering is at their price point. It's yeah, just baffling how precise things are, how well things fit together, connect, and work. And still, you can get one of these things for 20 bucks. It's insane. And the capping is so fantastic. These pens have such a great reputation for not drying out, and that is because of precise and accurate engineering in their pens. And they're creative as well. It's not just an engineering aspect from just a design standpoint. It's an engineering aspect in terms of mechanisms. And that I find really, really fascinating. They're not afraid to push the boundaries. Take an example like the Twisby Eco, which is a tremendously popular pen. The company is not afraid to push their own limits in engineering and come up with something like the uh, Swipe or the Go. They didn't need to do that. They didn't need to disrupt themselves and come up with something more engineeringly creative, but they did because that's such a big point of their brand identity. So hats off to Twisby. I don't think they're going to stop doing that anytime soon. I'm always thrilled to see what they come up with next. It's kind of of in their DNA, yeah. No, no, they're not just going to play it safe, and I love that about them. I think the fountain pen world is better with pen companies like that in there. And then for an honorable mention, uh, this brand is kind of on a hiatus right now. We've never been able to carry them, but Conid is a uh, Belgium-based fountain pen manufacturer that um, has always made small batches of pens, but it's mm-hmm. known throughout you know the pen community because of their really crazy design and their engineering prowess in terms of their own fiddling mechanism, which is, as far as I know, a unique one in the mm-hmm. industry. It's kind of a combination a draw filler and um, kind of a piston. It is a piston, but the rod separates from the gasket and you know kind of goes into a resting position which is just really really unique and if you've ever had the opportunity to use one you know what i'm talking about um again it's not something we've ever carried probably won't ever be able to carry it unfortunately but um yeah i encourage you to you know look never it up say online. never but yeah that's there yeah they, they uh, stop yeah, shipping it up online like, they, even end consumers like they're so they're not looking to expand yeah. retailers right now yeah but it's definitely something that occupies a very unique place in the industry because of their engineering absolutely and uh, you, you know, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I think um, there's obviously lots of ways that you could kind of uh, interpret this question since it is such a wide open thing. Um, but, you know, like all educated people do, I looked at Wikipedia for what the word engineering means because I was like, what does, what, what are we calling engineering here? So it's the use of scientific principles to design and build machines, structures, and other items, including bridges, tunnels, roads, vehicles, and buildings. So, you know, Drew, I can interpret this as like, which pens do we think we could assemble into the best bridges or buildings? So, I mean, we could really go wide with this question. But anyway, it's basically I'm not not going to even (laughs) respond to you right now. Because well, you're behaving too much like Brian Goulet at this moment. I'm, I'm turning this into a, a hypothetical question <laughs> that I don't want to answer. But no, I mean, um, I, I think I think there's there's just, you know, anytime you throw the word best, it's completely up to interpretation, depending on what it is that you think 
it is. It's very subjective. Um, you can engineer something to be a piece of crap and it can be <laughs> great engineering for what you were trying to accomplish. Well, that, that, you know that's not the point of this question. Well, like, look at, okay. You, we don't need to split hairs here. <laughs> what do you think are the, like, the best, most uniquely engineered pens? Come on, man. Okay, I'll give you a great example. Bic disposable ballpoint pens. They are tremendous marvels of engineering because they were trying to create uh, the absolute cheapest pen that could be mass produced. They accomplished by far exactly what they were trying to do. Is it the greatest writing experience? No, but they did exactly what they were (laughs) trying to accomplish. The engineering was fantastic for what they were trying to do. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm just kind of being a smart smart aleck on this one but oh you think um, am i you know in general fountain pens every single fountain pen company is standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to engineering and technology because fountain pens themselves are more or less at the pinnacle of writing instrument technology of course you can you can over engineer and do all kinds of different things with other types of like how you're doing with this answer yeah exactly i'm over engineering (laughs) But really, you know, fountain pens for, for a, I mean, of course we're super biased, so we think it's the best writing instrument, but you know, you look at the number of patents and stuff that came out around fountain pens in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was a super technologically driven development to come up with the writing instrument. Is that still happening today? No. So, I mean, basically you're coming out with iterations of something that already was marvelously engineered so pretty much anything that we're talking about as long as it's a writing functional fountain pen is up for debate as to how well it's engineered now that said if you're talking about like quality control and consistency and stuff like that i think we have to mention basically all the japanese companies pilot sailor platinum their qc is superb Um, i think that pelican especially with their suvron series m400 up through m1000 are tremendous that's why they haven't changed them in like decades is because it's kind of hard to improve upon them. And then um, I think other companies like Diplomat, ST DuPont, Namiki, David Oscarson, their, their fit and finish is sublime. I think they have different design elements and things like that, but the engineering for the cap on a Diplomat arrow and just that crisp sound like that, you cannot accomplish that without tremendous engineering. So there's honorable things to talk about with most of the fountain pen brands out there. So anyway, and that's it. I'm going to get off my... Smart Alec horse. See, see, I think what I think what, what, what we talked about this earlier. We're like, wow, we got we got fifteen questions. We're not gonna be able to get get through all these. And I said, sure, we will. I've done the math. If we do this many minutes per, th- and Brian's he's trying to prove me wrong now. He's math, like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, math I'll, I'll show you, Drew. That's right. I'm gonna I'll prove it. it. We're not gonna I'm get gonna through. Re- <laughs> I'm gonna wreck your math. <laughs> We'll move it along. All right. We'll move it along. Go ahead, Drew. Next next question comes from Bug Guy Sim, and he mm-hmm. asks us, Brian, maybe you've covered this before, but do you always match pen and ink colors? Um, no, but it's certainly my natural inclination to at least consider it. So if I pick up a, a pen, especially that has a strong dominant color, like an orange pen, 
I have this one right at my disposal, so that's why I'm using it in every question. Um, <laughs> but if it's an orange pen like this, naturally I'm going to be like, ooh, I wonder what orange would match this. And I'm like, eh, do I really need an orange? You know, no. Or like if I have a new exciting ink, I'd be like, oh, I want to use that. Oh, well, I really want to use this pen. Okay, I don't care that it's a hot pink and it's an orange pen. Whatever. I'm just going to use it. Um, you know, but certainly it's like the first instinctual thing. It's just very visual. And I look and I say, what would match this? Or something that would contrast it in a complementary way, right? So something that would be maybe not an orange, but something that would complement that orange nicely. I don't know, like a black or a brown, Drew, right? Um, so I think that, um, you know, there's lots of lots of things that you could do that would, you know, kind of go in that way. But, you know, much like the way that I dress, much like the way that I have many of the aesthetic things in my life, it kind of crosses my mind, but I'm not going to like go really out of my way to make it happen. I'm not one of the people that will like, I need to buy a specific thing because it will match this other thing that I have to have at this point in time. I'm like, no, that's just, that's too much work. I'm just going to, if I like it, I'm going to get it. If I think it pairs up well enough and it's here and it's convenient and I want to try it, then I'm just going to do it. So there you go. But that said, I do like when I'm testing inks and stuff like that, I do, I do tend to like pens that are a little more neutral, things like Twisbees and, and stuff like that, or maybe like a charcoal or a black or something like that, because then I just know I'm not going to have that kind of at least initial like ping of, you know, maybe bias towards a certain color, you know? So I like demonstrators for that reason. I like pens that are a little more neutral for when I know that the ink is the, really the thing that I'm trying to get out of the experience. Um, you know, but you know, it's, it's, it's usually somewhat of an afterthought for me. How about you, Drew? Uh, yes, always not. Always? I'm not super strict. Always. Uh, I'm not super strict about this is an orange pen. It needs to be with an orange ink. Like you made an example of, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I do always, I am always intentional about matching in some way because hmm. not due to the fact that I need to pair it for aesthetic purposes, but due to the fact that I'm really bad at making decisions about ink. And we always have so many inks that I want to try. It's helpful for me to put rails on this thing. Um, like I, 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 so I collect some things. Okay. And everything that I collect, I have to put rails on. Like I'm only going to collect old video game cartridges, not discs. I'm only going to collect Funko pop figures that are main characters from 1980s movies. I'm only going to like, I need rails because Mm. otherwise I will lose control. I have, I need to, I know this about myself. So this gives me rails. If I but say Drew, I'm going to pick an losing ink. control is so much fun, though. It's oh, so much it, fun. It, it's sure, I sure. Highly recommend it. Just go it's nuts. Also, just it's go also nuts. Par- it's also paralyzing sometimes, and I just need to pick an ink. So if I have yeah. an orange pen, I'm like, okay, cool. I'll at least stick with some earth tones, right? You know, I'll go with a brown or an orange or something, something around there. So okay. that at least narrows my selection down a little bit, and that just helps me make decisions so, a little bit easier. So maybe not like it has to match like be the color of the pen but there's always an aesthetic consideration that you rely upon to make a decision so you would so you would not just like oh i have this ink i want to try oh well see you know this this gets back to our pen cleaning habits drew you always have pens that are like clean and ready to go whereas i would be like what's the pin what's the pen that i have around that doesn't already have ink in it or needs to be cleaned oh this one Oh, it happens to be fuchsia. Oh, okay. I'll use this, you know, whatever turquoise. Those actually kind of go well together, but like whatever. A purple pen and I'll use this yellow ink in it. Like, no, it doesn't look great together, but whatever. Yeah, I, I will I will say I'll, having I'll only three pins inked up at a time does make that a challenge because I've got three pens inked up right now and two of them, I've had such a hard time 
uninking. So rather than choosing the one I've had inked up the longest to be the one that changes out for the new one, I've just been changing out one because the other two I love writing with so much. So mm. it's been challenging. But what I would do in that situation, if I had a magenta ink that I really wanted to write with, I would say, all right, which one of you pens is going to go away? And I'm going to find another pen in the collection that matches better with the magenta and bring that out. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Or, 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 you know, I have a black pen that's ready to go and that can work with anything. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. I, right now I have a... Um, I have a, a, a Prussian blue ALR that would, you could put magenta in that, no problem. You know, with me, Drew, now that I think about it, I think nib size of the given pen at hand is as much a factor for me as the color. Like if I'm, if, if, if I have an ink that I really want to use a new ink or something like that. And this, we, we may be somewhat unique because we are, we are trying new inks all the time for the purpose of our career, right? Like for and we job. have access to yeah, we have all a, of Yeah, them. we have immediate yeah. access to the hottest new inks. So like we want to try those right away. Um, so we may be a little more ink driven in some of this type of decision making. Um, but yeah, I will, I will have an ink and I'm like, oh, I know this is a really good shader. Or I know this is really good. And I have this pen. Oh, it's an extra fine. That's not really going to do it justice. Yeah. <laughs> so that actually is probably a bigger factor for me. Uh, maybe even than the actual color of the pen. But then that said, I completely mix up my ink colors and pens all the time. I leave them in there and then I forget what ink was in there exactly. I might remember, but if I have a bunch of pens and there's like five different blues in there, I'm like, I think this was Navajo Turquoise, but I don't know. I really need to be sure. Darn it. I need to clean it out. It's probably blue water ice. Could be. Could be. I have a lot of blue inks. Anyway, there you go. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I would love to know what you all do, you know, because obviously we, you can nuance this a little bit, but I know this is like something very common with people in the fountain pen world and it's part of the fun, honestly. Um, but I'm curious to know like what, what drives your ink and pen matching, you know, habits. Kind of curious how that works out. All right. Moving on. Viva La Kelly uh asked we need to know where drew buys his shirts assuming he buys them and they're not donated from people that don't want to wear them anymore i'm joking i'm joking <laughs> Drew. we love your shirts we love your shirts yeah but i have nothing I put, to I, contribute I, to this question so i'm just gonna let you take it over yeah <laughs> I, I i put this on here because every time i ask for questions i i do get at least one of these so here during the all questions considered episode we are going to uh it's not an interesting answer because all over the place. I've been <laughs> buying funky shirts for a while. It started off when I, I just kind of bought some cheapo Hawaiian shirts. I'm like, oh, these are fun. And then I was like, I don't have anything to wear during the holidays. And then I started buying Christmas sweaters. But then it became a challenge because they started making intentionally tacky Christmas sweaters. And I said, I don't want those. I want ones that were meant to look good. So that's been a challenge. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep this going. So anyway, I just started buying funky, funky button-ups. And uh, yeah, I find a lot of them at like, you know, Marshalls or TJ Maxx, you know, just, you know, they show up and they're like 13 bucks. So I was like, okay, why not? This one I got from the Hot Topic website like three years ago. So you never know where you might find them. Um, but it's kind of a thing where if anybody sees a funky t-shirt, they're like, hey, Drew, what about this one? And I'm usually I'm like, eh. But then sometimes I'm like, mm, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, the Disney website, I bought a couple from there. Uh, there's a website called Box Lunch that they have a couple. My really funky, crazy 80s ones are from a website called Supermassive Shop. And then uh, there's another one uh, called Middle of Beyond. That's where I got my Ghostbusters shirt and uh, mm. a 
couple others, I think. But yeah, they're all over the place. I mean, they're, they're not. It's not uncommon to find funky printed button ups. They're kind of everywhere. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no secret. Just I've been picking them up for years, and when I see one, especially if it's less than twenty dollars, that's that's what I really like. There you go. And that's it. Drew, this actually segues really nicely into our next question. That's not possible. Yeah, I think it does. Okay. I literally have nothing to contribute to this oh. question. So you, uh, you, well, you, I guess it kind of would be. Go ahead and ask the next one. All right, all right. Well, let, let me, let, let, let's hear. Let's hear. Um, uh, it kind of looks like Gwen Elliott. Um, I'm just going to go with that. Gwen Elliott asks, if y'all weren't doing fountain pens professionally, what would your jobs be? So the reason I, don't I even s- want to imagine that the reason I say this segue is nicely Drew is because you could be some kind of like shirt connoisseur or purveyor of funky shirts. You know, you mentioned like mm. funkybuttonups.com or something like that. I could see you at least being the mascot. Maybe not running the thing, but like at least being the, the front man for funky funky button downs or button ups. Yeah, they need some, some they, they need a very generic looking human. Somebody that just mushes into the background you what's your name drew i don't have a job because i never got to work at the kool-aid pen company please hire me i got nothing better to do okay <laughs> okay so that is one thing that we need to you and i need to get on the same page about drew did you interpret this question as if we had like never gotten into fountain pens what would we be doing or if we had to like stop and do something different because my two very Ooh, different answers that is two very different answers mm-hmm. um well I feel like I know myself better now than I did 10 years ago. So I feel like maybe we could answer it as of now. Okay. Well, because back then, I don't know. I'd probably like, I I just, Circuit City was still a thing back then. I don't even know where the heck, like. Yeah, they're not, they're not around anymore. So. No, but I did used to work for them. There you go. Um, And I used to work for Radio Shack. They're still around though, I think. I don't know what they're doing now. Maybe they're selling funky button-up shirts. Probably not radios. <laughs> they weren't selling many radios at the time I was working there in the early 2000s. But anyway, um, we did sell transistors and capacitors and all those things. Anyway, um, so I sort of posed the question a little bit as if I hadn't gotten into fountain pens because obviously that would be such a different you know, life experience. Um, I honestly can't say where I'd be because I was all over the place. Uh, and I mean, how else do you end up in the fountain pen business? You know, you have to kind of be wandering through life a little bit, especially because I wasn't like, I didn't have a family business that I was working in around fountain pens. Then that would kind of make sense. But like, how else do you end up as an online purveyor of obscure and technologically perhaps outdated, you know, writing instruments? Well, you, you find it somehow. Um, so I was considering going into the army. I had an ROTC scholarship that I turned down. Uh, that I would, but I was all, I was considering heavily going in. Um, I thought very seriously about becoming an electrician. I was actually a realtor, and I sold one house. Um, and I did house power washing. I was a certified carpet cleaner and upholstery cleaner. Uh, I did home repair, deck sealing you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So I really don't know where I was going or what I was going to end up doing. <laughs> I kind of very fortunate that I found this because I'd probably be lying down in a ditch somewhere if I hadn't ended up in fountain pens. Um, or at least I'd be like homeless in the woods as some kind of like, you know, uh, survivor man type 
situation <laughs> because I don't know how I'd provide for myself. Um, but I've always loved tools and construction, building things, woodworking. So I think, you know, I probably would have gone somewhere down that road because originally that's what I was trying to do with Goulet pens as I was making pens out of wood. So had that not panned out, I might've pursued some level of carpentry or woodworking or something like that, working in a cabinet shop, maybe, I don't know. I had a lot of passion around that and still do in my spare time. Um, my formal education was in residential property management. And seeing as how there are people all over the earth who need places to live, there are properties to be managed with residents in them. It's a pretty good fallback if I ever needed to get into that. It wasn't like where my heart was calling me, particularly after I did my internship there and got my degree. I was like, yeah, I don't know about this. But that could have been a good fallback. Um, and I think I probably could have ended up in some sort of content creator influencer type space because I was sort of doing that in tandem with the retailer aspects of Goulet Pens. I could have very well done a similar type of thing, but just in a different kind of industry around tools or something like where, where I had other passions um, that it could have led me down that road and I could have probably not established a retailer type of situation around that, but could have been, you know, more of like a, a content creator and had like a video, you know, woodworking guild, online guild or something like that. I could have see, see kind of going, going down that road um, and something like that. But I don't know. I really didn't have much of a plan before I got into all this. I was very, very young. It was what, 20, 23 when I started making pens. So it was, what do you know at 23, Drew? Basically nothing. nothing. Basically nothing. And I knew less. Yes, I agree. Um, if I was forced to stop, I'm just kidding. If I was forced to stop now, I mean, I have obviously like a reputation, some notoriety of some degree. Um, I have more business experience than I did 12 years ago. Um, so I would probably take some time to reflect. If somebody said like, nope, Gulipans is shut down. You can't do this anymore. You have to do something completely different. I'd probably take some time and just reflect and consider my next career move. Maybe do some consulting of some kind because there's lots of small businesses and I'm proud of what we've done at Gulipans. I would like to think that there's some level of experience or, you know, contribution I could have to other companies in some consulting capacity. I don't think I'd be a great consultant, so it would not be a long-term gig for me because I'm pretty unmanageable. Um, I've never had a job before where I've done um, satisfactorily. Um, the quality of my work's always been good, but I, I'm too much of a, um, uh, what do you call it? A change agent. Mm. I, I do not comply well with established procedures an instruction. I challenge basically everything that is presented to me. So if somebody's, you know, giving me like, well, here's how you do it. You just do this job and then that's your job. I'd be like, well, why do we do it this way? Why, what if we did it this way? Have you tried this, that, and I end up just being really, really annoying. Um, even that's really surprising to me considering how well and efficiently you answer wide open questions. I know you would think. Yeah. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you learn something new every day, right? <laughs> um, so I, I love e-commerce and just marketing and doing this kind of stuff. So certainly I could see doing something related to that. Um, but again, that unmanageable aspect, I would, I would probably at this point not be able to really ever work for anybody else for any significant period of time. Um, but I also should say like, this is not going to happen if I have anything to do about it. I have no inclination to voluntarily change 
my situation here in the foreseeable future. <laughs> so y'all are stuck with me as you are here. I have no desire to leave doing good pens in the current capacity. There you go. I think you could. I think you could be managed. It would just need to be a very specific type of management. It would need to be like you'd need to be like, you know, some sort of on-site manager, and then you have like some sort of corporate dude above you that only shows up every once in a while mm. to be like, you know, how are your numbers? Okay, great, and then leave. Yeah, if it um, was but a you, you also like hands off. Like I don't know yeah. what you do. I don't care how you do it. Just do your thing. Okay, yeah. that is the only scenario and, where I could see it working. Well, even if it was a little bit more than that, I think you're you're shortchanging yourself a little bit because while you also have learned a lot about management and leadership over the last decade, you've also learned, you know, what works as a direct report and what is not really acceptable. So sure, I do sure. think you'd, you you'd probably be better than you think you would be as a um, yeah yeah as someone who I mean I wasn't okay. You're right. I am being hard on myself. I'm not unmanageable in terms of like difficult to deal with but i think it's more um it's definitely not your natural state for sure it's it's not my natural state and i i move very quickly you know so it's like and this oh, yeah this works because we're in e-commerce i have many different roles i kind of serve in you know so things change a lot which keeps it very dynamic for me and certainly there are roles like that out there and that's probably that's certainly what i would seek if i were to ever go work for somebody else but um, that's never been my experience at any of my past jobs, if you can even call it that, because I'm going back so far to having worked for other people that it's really not even relevant experience. It was like I was a stalker at Food Lion while I was in college, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a hard worker and I'm a good employee, but I would not I would not be happy there for very long at all unless it was changing a lot and I had a lot of challenges. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't be at any one place. I would bounce around all the time and probably end up starting my own business again. What about you, Drew? Um right now I would probably if the if it, if the earth opened up and just swallowed up Goulet pens and I was the lone survivor, I would probably um see if I could learn how to repair pinball machines and do that. That sounds like fun. Repairing pinball machines. Is that like a legitimate yeah, well, thing? Oh, sure. Pinball is like still a popular... It's kind of like fountain pens where it's popular within its own okay. little it's got zone. Like a, like a diehard following kind of Yeah, and, and not everybody who owns a pinball machine knows how to fix it. I don't know either, but I feel like it would be fun to learn. And I could just be that quirky dude that shows up and, you know, has a bag of funky tricks and fixes your pinball machines. Make sure that... The little magnet that sucks up the ball is doing its job. And I don't know. That'd be that'd be kind of cool. You could I, you could probably fit in well with some of your funky shirts in a pinball repairman's role. Thank you. You look like you. you look like you could be a pinball repairman. Thank you. <laughs> no, if that's thank a, you. I don't know if that's a compliment. Even as I'm saying it, I'm intending it to be a compliment. No, I'll I'll take it as a compliment. Okay. I've I have the utmost respect for the uh, people who both manufacture and repair pinball machines it's a those are complicated they're getting more complicated too are they still being made like are there absolutely yeah there are modern mm -hmm. pinball absolutely manufacturers it's probably like absolutely. you said it's probably like fountain pens like it's not it's not in vogue but there's a there's like a diehard group of oh yeah. And stuff. yeah stern stern pinball still churns out new tables like every month you you know if you follow huh. them on instagram they've got you know uh awesome new table uh, tables like mandalorian is just one they, they came out with uh this year like a lot of the stuff looks really really fantastic hmm. 
And there are websites that you can type in a uh, table that you want to find. They can tell you the nearest one to you. It's a it's a whole thing. Wow. Oh yeah, man. Pretty neat. Oh, it's a thing. What, oh yeah. What is the most revered pinball table ever created? Is there like one <sighs> that's like the the holy grail of pinball collecting? Maybe, there's probably not one. Um, a lot of people like the Adams Family, Twilight Zone, Star Trek: Next Generation mm. is a popular one. Okay. Um, and uh, there's some really cool modern ones like the Stern ones that I mentioned as well. Uh, there's Theater of Magic, Circus Voltaire, Arabian Nights is a personal favorite. Uh, there, there are a lot of good ones, but yeah, I don't, Adam's Family and Twilight Zone seem to be um, right, right there up at the tippy top. Hmm. Pretty cool. I'm not an expert, but that, that's from you know. You sound pretty expert-like to me. I, I'm definitely not. Once you dip your toe into into that world, you quickly realize that you are absolutely not. There you go. All any pinball fans we have, please just lambaste Drew in the comments. No, honestly, I will. I will is. Like, no, I've, Drew. It's the Indiana Jones 1986 blah, 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 pinball. Even machine. within even within the fountain pen industry, though, Brian. Like, I will sometimes like you know read on forums on Facebook or other places. And I'm like, wow, this person knows so much more about fountain pens than I do. So like, mm. even in the industry that I spend eight hours a day plus on. I still am not, you know, the most educated person out there. So Fair enough. I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert at anything ever because I'm never going to be. I mean, you hop on the internet and you're never going to be the smartest person anywhere, right? No. Anyway, cool. All right, Drew, I got a question for you from, Go Har- for it. from Harper 70. Your work environment. That's not the question part. That's it's coming. How does it work with COVID and people working remotely? That's a big question, and we, we've we've mentioned it here and there on the pencast. We usually have company updates, but it's it's obviously been weird for everybody. But uh, it's been the norm for so long. It's like like the the abnormal has been normal for so long. It's mm-hmm. it you know it's just it's just a thing now. Now it does change from day to day. We still do have at the company here uh, more than half of our workforce working remotely most of the time. So. We are still very much in COVID mode right now. Uh, I'm happy to say that the leadership team of the company, you know, Brian and Rachel obviously included there, have always seemed to have been one step ahead of a lot of the, you know, government mandates, you know, CDC mandates, stuff like that. And it's been really, really efficient in terms of making sure that our team is safe and protected. And luckily, Mm -hmm. we have not been devastated by you know any outbreaks or anything like that so it's actually been pretty smooth all things considered knock on wood um and we're we're still doing that and you know and uh they they meet every week and discuss what's new how are we going to do this and um it's always top of mind as stressful as it might be for the company's owners it's uh it's always there ever present always on their back like a cozy little koala right brian Definitely yes. not like a python or a boa constrictor, right? It's more like the movie Gremlins when you have this, <laughs> like, yes, they're they're kind of cute, but you know at any second it could just yes. like rip into you. <laughs> it's kind of like that. I'm like, okay, we've got it under control, but at any moment yeah. it could turn into a nightmare. So we just, Yeah, you know. we're, we're fortunate in that um, before the pandemic hit, anybody who needed access to a computer 
had um, MacBooks. That was the piece of hardware that we standardized mm-hmm. on. So when it came time to just move out, clear out, we were actually in a pretty darn effective place to be able to uh, transition to remote work. It still took some doing. It was still a transition, yeah. but um, it could have been a lot worse in terms of just hardware and that uh, physical transition to creating, you know, a, you know, two dozen home offices essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was actually worked really well. Um, the only thing that is kind of like a, you know a big hit is that uh, if you've been following us on social media throughout the years, it, it's I think it's pretty obvious that we have a really really awesome company culture here. And when you are in the building with the team, there is a there is a magic. Honestly, there there is a a feeling there is an atmosphere that is unlike any place that I have either worked or any workplace that I have ever visited. It is something very, very special and very, very unique. And when you're missing most of the, you know, human beings that make that magical, it, it is diluted a bit. And I do miss that. I'm very, very eager to uh, having that return one day. We used to have a ton of events. We had, you know, celebratory events, breakfasts, you know, mm-hmm. annual parties, things like that. Um, any any excuse we could have. Like we we had a culture squad that its job was to plan appreciation events. Like it it like it's yeah. next level. Like the the in office culture is truly next level and it's something that I immensely appreciated at the time and sorely miss now, but uh, yeah. I have no Same. doubt that Same. when the time comes that it will it will come back hard and it'll be fantastic and i believe it'll be well worth the wait so it's just not something we can do now but um yeah that's probably the biggest you know brownie face moment um yeah but uh hey if that's the biggest brownie face moment i i will take it because you know health and safety comes first and luckily we have not had any frowny face moments in terms of that exactly anything you want to add yeah i mean we could get into like nitty-gritty of like internal procedures we've done and like distancing and stuff like that but you know I mean, we have, we have videos of, you know, tours of our office and stuff like that. I mean, thankfully we have enough space to be able to space out. So those who are in the office, especially the folks who are handling physical products, we have products we have to receive and inspect and ship out and all that kind of stuff. Um, we do have people that, that have to be in the building to be able to function. So, um, props to them. They are our heroes right now for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, so we have, we've had to adjust a lot of internal procedures and stuff to be able to maintain that distance and safety and stuff for those who are physically needing to interact with each other. Um, so there's a lot of that stuff that I won't get into the nitty gritty of it, but we've had to adjust a number of those things, which we did relatively quickly and, and we've pretty much got that down now, but it's, it's kind of the, you know, the ever present kind of thing hanging over there, not just with COVID related stuff, but now we're entering into seasonal flu time and a lot of the symptoms look exactly the same as COVID. And so it's like, okay, my kid has a temperature or the sniffles or whatever. I have something, it's probably seasonal allergies, but let's play it safe. So we're having a lot of disruptions there just to, again, kind of play it safe. So we're having to pace things out. And that's why, you know, we've talked in the pencast and we've sent on newsletters and other things. We have our website, we extended the shipping time and all that. It's because we're having a lot of more of that kind of stuff that's coming up and we're erring on the side of, well, let's let's just play it safe um, and not, you know, unknowingly bring something into the building that then, you know, disrupts things to a greater degree and puts people's health at risk and all that. So, um, you know, largely it's working well and our people have been really good, really flexible and adaptable, but it's, you know, it's a slog. It feels, it feels kind of like we're running a race with like one shoe off, you know, it's like, it's doable, but it just feels kind of weird, you know, like walking around with only one shoe. Like it's, 
it's an inconvenience. You can still do everything you need to do, but you're just kind of like wonky and lopsided all the time. <laughs> you know, that's very much how it feels just kind yeah. of across the board. Cool. All right. All right. Next up, Brad the Bear One returns to us once again to ask mm. us a question. This time, Brad is asking about the process of becoming an authorized retailer, of which you are, Brian. So I feel like uh, hey. you are uniquely suited to answer Brad's question. Yeah. Um, good question. So uh, I'll start off by saying it, it probably varies a lot in different industries. I really can't speak to what that's like. I, I connect with a lot of other business owners in e-commerce and otherwise, um, and it very much varies across the board as to the complexity and, and vetting process, if you will. Um, in the fountain pen world, I can speak to that because that's what I've actually gone through, right? Um, so it's not overly complicated. Um, the specific process can vary from one manufacturer to another, so I'll kind of just give a range a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, it's about relationships and trust. That's really what it is. I mean, what does it mean to be authorized, right? Um, so manufacturers will have specific preferences for how their products are to be sold, to be presented, displayed, priced, advertised, serviced, you know, et cetera, because they have certain goals in terms of where they want their brand to be in the marketplace. And, you know, especially if they're operating globally, how in the world do you keep the perception of your brand consistent with different cultures, different time zones, and all these various things? Well, you do that through intentionality, right? Um, so they have their intentions and essentially as an authorized retailer, we are taking the manufacturer's wishes and saying, yes, we are going to, um, you know, essentially live up to what you have set forth as your goals. Um, so uh, there's a lot of things that are, are completely left up to our discretion as retailers um, that we have a lot of freedom to be able to do. And uh, I will say in the fountain pen industry, there's some hard, fast rules around, you know, certain pricing and certain, you know, ways of distribution and things like that. Um, but they're probably, you know, relatively, relatively basic um, and not overly complex, like maybe some other industries may be. I'm thinking about like like fashion industries and some of the things where it's like, there's a lot more money at stake. There's probably a lot more specific rules about how things are to be done. Um, with us, it's really not, or it's certainly if you're like in the healthcare field or something, there's going to be way more in place because you have governmental laws and regulations and things like that to deal with. There's, there's relatively little of that to do. Basically the fountain pen industry is the wild west. More or less, but it's kind of like the wild west, like now, like there's buildings that were set up in the prospecting days that are mostly abandoned. And now you're going to the Wild West, not really because nobody else has discovered it yet, but more because they've gone there and they're like, yeah, we're just going to go over here now. <laughs> and it's kind of just left there. So there's a few people that like really love that and appreciate that. But like largely everybody else is like, yeah, okay, I know that's there, but I don't really want what's going on. So basically though, every, we're all just like reenactors <laughs> pretending we're like Wild Bill Hickok and, you know, pretending like we're getting shot in the back with the dead man's hand. I mean, somewhat, right? Like <laughs> there's 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 a parallel to be drawn there, I guess. Um, we're di we're diverging a little bit, but anyway. Sorry, so that was my retailers, fault. yeah, no, no, it's fine. Retailers, uh, you know, they want to know like there's benefit to being an authorized retailer because you know that the stock that you're buying is the real stuff. 
you know, in other industries, it's probably more rampant to have counterfeits and these types of things and gray market, black market type products, you know. Um, so there's certainly advantage to having a, a guarantee and a consistency within your supply chain. So that's the advantage we get as an authorized retailer, you know, plus there's other things, service and support and accurate information about the products or, or these types of things that we can rely on from our our you know supply chain so there's a there's a good benefit for the manufacturer and for retailers and thus you know also for you as the end consumer um to having that kind of authorized relationship um so uh it's a good thing for both sides um because you know that you're going to be getting a better quality you're going to be more able to rely on having your expectations properly met whatever they may be you know you're Yes, an individual retailer, you know, could could overpromise and underdeliver on some aspect of things. But then, if they do that, you know, a bunch of times, they're going to get a reputation for being kind of shady, and people won't buy from them, and therefore, they will vote with their dollars, and that retailer will not sell any of those products, or maybe not be in business altogether. Or the manufacturer may say, well, we don't want an authorized retailer of ours to have such a bad reputation and be out of line for the way that we want to do things. We are going to no longer allow you to be an authorized retailer. Goodbye. You're doing a bad thing for our brand. So this is over. Likewise, if a manufacturer starts making terrible products or they're way off the mark on their pricing, or they just get completely out of touch with what customers want, we as authorized retailers might say, yeah, this isn't really doing it for us anymore. So y'all do your thing. We're going to just like stop carrying it. So it can work both ways. There's good checks and balances, I think, kind of all around, um, you know, not like minute by minute, but over time, like it all plays out again. It's all, it's all about trust. It's all about trust with the relationships. Um, so in terms of the actual like process of being authorized, um, it's really up to the manufacturer. They are the ones who essentially choose who is going to be more or less a representative for their brand. Um, otherwise, they would just sell everything directly. But, you know, when they have intentions of distributing their products throughout the world, they will oftentimes, if they're a global brand, they will have local distributors that, you know, there's, there's some logistical advantages to doing that because there are tax laws and some other things culture barriers and language barriers and things like that, that if you have a local distributor that smooths that out, you know, whereas if you have a pen company who has, is expected to know, you know, I think about a company like Lamy, they, they, they sell in something like 70 different countries. Like they distribute to 70 different countries. Well, not everybody in their little factory, relatively speaking, little factory in the grand scheme of manufacturing is going to know all those different languages, all those different cultures, all those different expectations and be able to tie it all together. So they have local distributors that have much more context to all the laws and regulations and import locations and all that all that logistical stuff. Um, and it's the same kind of thing like that then is the same for all the retailers. So think about like, you know, a brand like Lamy, they have a US distributor. So they work through that distributor. That distributor then works through the hundreds, if not thousands of retailers, I don't know how many they have, but I'm assuming it's a lot a bunch of retailers in North America or wherever their kind of territory is. Um, and then, you know, basically you're building those relationships there. So like, we're not like calling up, you know, the CEO of Lamy to set up our relationship. We're calling whoever the kind of authorized retailer is for our local area, wherever we are. Um, so basically if you want to be an authorized retailer, you make contact with whoever has the 
distribution rights for the territory that you're in, that you're operating your business, and you set up the relationship with them and you're working directly with them. They tell you all the kind of parameters and what's needed and yada, yada, yada. So um, that process can can vary quite a bit depending on how big the company is and what their goals are and, and et cetera. Um, but essentially you're applying to whatever degree that means after you built that relationship. So they're gonna ask you questions about your business. They're gonna look at your website or your storefront or whatever. You essentially have to kind of prove your legitimacy if they don't know who you are. If you're just kind of cold calling them and you're like, I'd love to sell pens. And they're like, okay, what's your business? And be like, well, I don't really have a business. I've never sold anything in my life. And, you know, I'm steeped in debt and, you know, I'm a college student and taking 25 credits per semester, but I really would love to sell your brand. They're going to be like, yeah, you're not really a business. So we're you not going to create a, You need to complete a series of challenges like with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Visconti, you need to climb to the top of Mount Etna and retrieve yes. Yes. some lava. Yes, Legends um, of the Hidden Temple style yeah. physical challenges. I think Nickelodeon Guts in the 90s, yep. you know, we got to climb, was it Crag Mountain? Is that, was that the uh, name Yes, the, the Agro Crag. Agro Crag, yes. Yes. Yeah, so I've had to do that a number of times with different brands. Yeah, and he still refuses to go, go yet you still refuse to go to uh, the top of Mont Blanc and retrieve cufflinks. I don't know why you're so stubborn about that. Yeah, I know. That one's a challenge. It's just the, one's a challenge, the temperature, but, I guess. Yep, yeah. yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I haven't thought about those shows in a very long time. I don't know why that comes up. Um, but yeah, so I mean, they basically, they you apply, they vet you to whatever degree is necessary. You know, so there's going to be probably reference checks, maybe some credit checks and the like, um, just kind of legitimizing your business and how much do they essentially trust you. Um, I will say that gets easier as you go further along. In the beginning, it was hard because, well, Rachel and I were pretty sketchy. We were like, well... We're a couple of 20-somethings. We've never run our own business before. We're in our house with our kid, our infant, but this is what we are trying to do, or this is what we have the vision to do, or this is what we're doing at an infinitesimal scale, but we really want to do this. Will you kind of take a gamble on us? We'll pay you in cash. And that helps (laughs) if they're like, well, I, you know, basically with every manufacturer, especially at the beginning, if you're like, they don't want to extend credit if they don't know you and know your legitimate business because they get burned too much, right? So, I mean, some of these, some of the inventory you buy can be quite a meaningful amount of money. So, you know, they need a, a track record of proof. So it's one of those things. It's like, how do you get a track record of proof if nobody will kind of give you your break? So like the way we had to do it, we had to, we had to essentially climb our way up, right? We started out with, with Exaclair who distributes Rodia, Clairefontaine, Urban, Quobatis. You know, we basically bought like notebooks and bottles of ink. We were selling pens in the beginning. You know, we were, I was making fountain pens. So we were like in the pen business. They knew that there was legitimacy there. And we were like, look, we'll, we'll buy everything in cash, you know, as soon as we receive it. And then, you know, that built the relationship there. And then once you have a track record with one, you know, supplier, it gets easier because then you can use them as a reference and all that. So essentially it's just, it's common sense. It's like, if you want to have a lot of friends, go be a really good friend to somebody new and then word of mouth and good, you know, reputation will build upon itself. And if you're, you know, a pleasant, honest, hardworking, charismatic person, and you have a good vision and you're executing your vision well, that naturally will kind of lubricate the gears a little bit and make it easier to then get, you know, newer distributors. But I mean, it took a long time. I mean, like Lamy was super sketchy with, I mean, we were super sketchy to Lamy at the beginning and pilot and Visconti and, you know, a number of them, like we, it was years, years we had to work and prove ourselves to some of these brands. Even today, Mont Blanc, 
you know, nothing against them, but they, they want to do things a specific way. We're like, yeah, we don't really do it that way. And we just, we aren't on the same page about that. So we're like, all right, cool. Well, if either of us changes our mind, let's talk again. Um, you know, and here we are still 12 years later, but you know, that's, that's basically it. So it's, uh, usually the larger, more established companies, the more credibility do you need, the more kind of formality and, and steps there are. So I'd say if you're looking in any industry to get in, kind of break into it, if you will, to be a retailer, an authorized retailer, you got to start small, be realistic, be honest, and then just essentially prove yourself, climb your way up and, and you just got to kind of earn it. And it's all about trust. If you lose your trustworthiness, it is fricking over. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't try to get away with things. You know, if somebody sends you too much inventory on a purchase order, tell them they sent you too much and be honest with all your accounting and everything. It's just that that burns people probably more than anything else. And you get, you know, sometimes people get desperate. They're starting out and they think like, oh, well, you know, nobody will know I can get away. Just don't do that stuff. It catches up with you eventually. So there you go. Well said. Anything to add there, Drew, or did I pretty much cover it? Well, the way I became an authorized, re- no, you you covered it. I mean, you've like seen it. You've seen us since the garage days. I mean, you've seen us. Oh yeah, I can I can definitely verify that they were extraordinarily sketchy. <laughs> I mean, we kind of worked. That part, you worked that part our, was true. Worked in our garage with no <laughs> like temperature control. I mean, we had no benefits. There was a was window like, unit. There was a window unit. Yes. As you were, you're violating. If you were near the window unit, it was it was pretty nice. Yes, as you were violating ink samples, the window unit was like right in your face, and it was just like blowing, <laughs> just completely. And there, just, then there was a there was there was a uh, there was a box fan chained to the ceiling. There was, that's right. So that helped circulation that helped to circulate the airflow to the other <laughs> half of the garage. Yeah, no, not sketchy we, at all. For you sure. know, we had we had we cared to the level of of our abilities in those yes. early days. <laughs> our yes. abilities were not great at that time, but you know. It worked. You stuck around. Yep. You're still here. <laughs> All right. And they were extraordinarily patient when I forgot to clock in using the clipboard um, hung on the wall with the nail. That's right. That's right. Um, good good all stuff right. all around. All right. Um, next one we have from Carolee69. What fountain pen should I get next? I love my Lamy's, but I can't decide what next. Help. Oh, no. I will do my very best. Uh, one thing I would also like to say that these questions are not all very super fountain pen centric. Like Brian said, these were questions that we kind of had on the back burner. We know we knew we wanted to answer them, but um, they were just kind of chilling for a rainy day. And today is that rainy day. So this one is actually very fountain pen centric. And I will tell uh, Carolee069 that if you have been enjoying fountain pens, a good kind of sidestep to Lamy in that, you know, same general price range would be Twisby. Uh, both, like we mentioned, are very well engineered brands you're not going to really be disappointed in the performance of said brands they're very different aesthetically uh they don't look at all the same uh, other than maybe you could compare a vista to the fact just because it's clear but it's a very different pen so very different writing experience you'll get to experience piston fillers and vacuum fillers in that same price range where you'd be hanging out with a studio and safari and all those other things so it's a good kind of sidestep if you wanted to check those out it's not really a big risk you're not really spending a whole lot more than you would be spending in that sub 100 dollars lamy family and uh, like lamy uh, they have uh, easily swappable nibs so you might want to check those out and then if you're ready for like a next level pen if you've been happy with the lamis but you want to step it up a little bit um there are a lot of great entry-level gold nib pens one that we spoke about brian recently on our uh, underrated pens episode was the pilot e95s there was oh, yeah. a lot of feedback a 
lot of positive feedback in the comments about the E95S. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, yes, the E95S is perfect. I have two, I have one, I've never let it go. So that's a great one. I believe it's our most affordable gold nib pen at this point. At this moment, yeah, you're correct. Yeah, so that's definitely, if you wanted to jump up, that's a great one to jump up to, um, Carolee. And then uh, if you want some more recommendations, we actually have a couple different videos uh, that Brian has done on top next level pens. We actually, uh, when you have seen this video, we will have a brand new uh, uh, top seven next level pens video uh, published. So check that out. We also have an older one. And then we have a uh, top entry level gold nibs pen that would also um, potentially be able to help you out there. So mm -hmm. uh, we've got a lot of content that kind of helps you make decisions in that zone if you would like to avail yourself of those. There you go. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a great question. We get asked this kind of stuff all the time. And the context changes. Like, we we shot those videos. They've been very, very popular, well performers. Um, but pens change over time. So, yeah, like Drew mentioned, several videos there. We're taking some of the more popular ones and refreshing them. So, um, yeah, keep an eye out because we're going to be publishing those uh, very soon. So, yeah, good stuff. Well, all right. Well answered, Drew. Well answered. Awesome. Our next question comes to us from Christopher with a K. Hey, oh. And he asks, Brian, what is your opinion on using a jeweler's cloth or polishing cloth to finish up with nib smoothing? I like my nibs super buttery smooth. Think hot butter on ultra smooth, ultra slippery ice. My mm. God. And I found that micro mesh is not quite enough to the smoothness where I would want it. Good God, Christopher. How wow. smooth do you need it? I mean, ultra smooth, ultra slippery ice, Drew. That's pretty smooth. Hot butter on ultra smooth, ultra slippery ice. That wow. That's going to run away from you, Chris. That is just going to like... <laughs> Brian, mm. what are your thoughts on this one? This is a very interesting one. Polishing cloth with nib smoothing. That's a new one on me. My first thought, because I've used this very phrase like hot butter on ice, physically... If you have a hot stick of butter and you put it on ice, which is cold, is it going to be smooth or would it get that <laughs> thing where it's kind of like, would it get grabby? You know what I mean? Because sometimes, you know, it's like if you grab like a popsicle or something and your hands have a little moisture on them, like it'll make it like stick and like freeze to the popsicle. I've never actually tried taking hot butter and moving it across ice. So... Not That's a job for the Mythbusters, Brian. Our job right? is to talk Maybe about I'm... whether or not you can use a jeweler's cloth to polish a nib. Okay. <laughs> that is what that is what I where I made all the notes in response to this. But just as you were reading that, I was like, would a hot butter actually glide that smooth on ice? I don't know. We can do that. We can we can let we can us do know. that next episode. Let us know actually... because clearly we need to know this. Um, hot butter meaning liquid butter? I mean, it couldn't be that hot, right? Like, See, now I'm doing it. Never mind. Stop. I feel like liquid butter would get cold that much faster, right? It, it would. It would. But we need to stop. We're, I'm, oh, I don't know. You're a bad influence on me. I feel like it's just going to create like a crusty, frozen butter <laughs> like layer on top of the ice. It would. You it definitely I mean? would. Like, the ice is going to win. <laughs> the ice is going to win. Unless your butter is like thermal. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thermal butter, I can't. Ha. Okay. Brian. Okay. Back to the actual question. <sighs> um, so speaking of things that I don't know, um, I've never actually tried polishing the tip of a nib with a jeweler's cloth. I've never seen it done. I doubt it works. 
so I've never had a thought to do it, but I've never tried it. So I don't know. I've never tried rubbing butter on ice, so I could be surprised. <laughs> but the thing I will say is I get what you're getting at here, Christopher, and we have a better solution already well-established we have we sell the product on our website. Every Nibmeister I've ever talked to does this process. So I think I have a better way to go about it than your polishing cloth, but I don't want to knock the polishing cloth because I've never tried it. And I've never heard it. I've never heard anybody else do it or knock it or whatever. Yeah, so Drew is showing you right there the solution. It is called Mylar Paper. So MicroMesh, it's very, very fine. It kind of feels like leather. It is an abrasive, but it's not the smoothest abrasive that you can get. So if you want it, it's, it's pretty dang smooth. I think the vast majority of fountain pen users find the 12,000 grit level MicroMesh, which is the MicroMesh that we offer, they find that level of MicroMesh to be all in all a desirable level of it can get you a desirable level of nib smoothness and just a little bit of grab to it it's not going to be the smoothest butteriest stuff you've ever to see now i cannot stop thinking <laughs> visualizing the butter it's going to wig me out <laughs> told you this episode would be enlightening um so uh the mylar paper it's it's even smoother it is still an abrasive on one side at least the shiny side will get you nowhere because it's just plastic it's the backer for the abrasive but the dull side that is the fine polishing side and there's two different colors because they are two different grits so the green grit will be the rougher if you can even call it that mylar paper and the white one will be really 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 fine abrasive to the fractions of a micron so um literally use these things in conjunction in the order that Drew's holding it up there. Go from your micro mesh to your green mylar and then to your white mylar. And you're going to have a hard time getting it any smoother than that with any other method. Um, the thing that's not good about using a jeweler's cloth, a couple of things. One is the cloth is soft, so it's not going to give you a consistent backing to the nib so i would you know when you're talking about smoothing something that much um particularly smoothing it in the means of texture not just a visual thing um you basically need like a firmer backing um ideally you want to take something like the mylar paper and you want to have it on a hard surface while you do it because you want it to be firm the smoother you have it the more likely you are to kind of round things off and it's it's actually not going to give you the smoothest feel um so the the smooth the the the, the cloth itself is not going to be great. But also the jeweler's cloth, um, it's it's impregnated with like a jeweler's rouge or a polishing compound of some kind. I don't know. There, there are different levels of polish that you can put in a polishing compound. I have no idea what level they put in jeweler's cloth. I don't know if it's the same thing. It could be different based on the brand. I don't know. It's probably not going to be as fine of as an, an abrasive as what's on these mylar sheets. But then again, I don't know 100%. Um, but the bigger issue is that if you have something impregnated in a cloth, it's very, very unlikely that you're going to have an extremely consistent application of that polishing compound throughout the cloth. And you're working when you're doing nib smoothing, especially to that degree. I mean, literally the way I've trained with Richard Bender and the way you do it is you like put it on the micro mesh and you essentially do like small ticks. I mean, you're talking like a couple millimeters of friction on that abrasive. You're not like doing huge figure eights on this mylar paper. Um, so you're working in a very small area. I mean, if you're trying to do that on something like a polishing cloth, you, I mean, there may not even be polishing compound in that particular spot where you are. So it's just going to be wildly inconsistent. 
Plus you could be jamming rouge. You could be jamming, you know, cotton fibers and other junk up in the middle of your, your nib slit as you're trying to use this cloth to polish the tip of your nib. And you can end up with flow issues and all kinds of other junk. So I just don't think it's the right tool for the job. In the Mylar paper, it's a couple of bucks. It is the well-established, well-confirmed way to do it from every nibmeister I've ever talked to. So that is going to pretty much be your answer. Agreed. Did I get that on? Spot on, Drew? Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. All right. Jared Ball Books asks us our next question. It says, hmm, is it possible to switch nibs on a pen? Excuse me. Is it possible to switch nibs on a pen if you suddenly have the urge to write with a broad? So like mid-inking, can you switch the nibs on your pen, Drew? Um, I don't think that that's... Uh, no, the answer to that is no, Jared. If that's what you're after, if you're after a fountain pen that can have another nib size within it, uh, the answer is mm-hmm. no, not exactly. No? Um, not like a, one uh, of those uh, like four-in-one well, clicky pens, you know? Th- you can... It, w- it you, would be like this big, but you could have like a click on the back and you can be like you, you, yeah if you want to get so so i'm not entirely sure if jared is asking like in an in an instant can you do that now you, i could answer yes you can jared you can have an instant switch from a fine to a broad the way that is done though is uncommon and requires the work of a professional because what you can have done is to send your nib to a nibmeister or a nib grinder and that person could grind if it's the right type of nib with enough tipping in the right places they can grind the bottom of the nib to um, maintain a broad or a larger nib and then the top of a nib you could flip it over right with the underside of the nib and that could be a fine or an extra fine so it is doable um but you can only pick two sizes you can't have like you know whole gamut i don't know if that's what you were asking but i did want to just mention if we do have any listeners out there that may not be familiar with nib swapping i thought this would be a good opportunity to educate you so um Mm -hmm. the answer is if you do want to switch the nib on your pen that is very often possible in fact there are a lot of fountain pen companies that go out of their way to make it possible for you lamy twisby like i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. they both manufacture and sell separate nib units that are very easily swappable onto your pen for you know sometimes 25 dollars or less with those two brands with other brands, you have industry standard sizes, industry standard, you know. Uh, there are number five sizes, which are kind of mid-sized, and number six sizes, which are kind of the largest, most often used nibs. And with, you know, we have Goulet-branded number six nibs. Edison has branded number six nibs. Monteverde and Conklin also. All of these nibs are made, the ones I've mentioned anyway, are all made from the same manufacturer, Yovo, over in Germany. And they're just branded differently. But some of them are more affordable than others. Some of them come with little nib housings and feeds. Some of them don't. But either way, if you feel like uh, you'd like to explore that as an option, hop on the website, see if you can find out for yourself. If you cannot, our customer care team is happy to help you navigate those waters. And if you wanted to just reach out, you can call us, you can email us and say, hey, I've got this pen. Do you have a replacement nib for it? And we will let you know. Most of the time we will uh say yes um or find a way to but it's absolutely possible with a lot of pens even if um you know you don't have a pen that has you know nibs readily available for it there are sometimes other options you could buy you know a used pen off ebay that maybe some other element other than the nib might not be 
ideal, but you can kind of cannibalize it a little bit and um, at least pull the nib in the feed. Usually on a fountain pen, removing the nib and feed is pretty simple and roughly standard as far as just popping them out. But the answer is, yeah, if you've got a pen you want to switch, it's usually possible in one way or another. Yeah, I'll add to that just one quick thought. Sometimes, especially if you have, you know, like starter pen sets or sometimes they have like calligraphy pens that you can find in like a big box, you know, art supply store or something like that. A lot of times you'll see them with, you know, a one pen with several different grips to it. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a pretty common, usually that's commonly marketed. They're fountain pens, but they market them as calligraphy because they have stub nibs on them. They are designed to be able to have the option to put a different grip on there, which is definitely a little less like involved than having to physically pull the nib out and swap the parts and stuff. So that's kind of cool. But the thing with that is, you know, fountain pen ink is water-based. So basically if you're, whether you're swapping just the nib part out or a whole grip of a pen or whatever, it's not like you can just leave that thing hanging out there right with your broad nib for three days and come back and swap the fine back on there and go on your merry way. That part needs to be cleaned out. So it's, you know, the part that you're not using. So even that it's like, okay, yes, you have different grips, but it's really not meant to be like, let me change and use this for a few hours and then just kind of change back and be on my merry way. Uh, it's really more like you're buying, you know, one pen set and you can go through the setup when you do your initial inking and cleaning and, and set it up to be that way with that nib size. And then when you clean it out and do it all over again, you can then make it a different nib size. It's a little less, you know, on the fly than you might have, uh, you know, with a, a rollerball pen or something like that, because that ink is, is uh, going to evaporate out of there in a relatively short period of time if it has nothing else attached to it. All right. And I will say, uh, in response to my previous comment, you might not have to engage the services of a professional nibmeister in order to have a reverse grind on your nib. Some pens just kind of do it. So if you're curious and you have a pen that's broad, flip it over and see if it writes on the other side. A lot of them do. Um, yeah. it, it just depends. They're not meant to do that. So if it doesn't do that, you know, don't be all upset about it. Yeah. But a lot of the times they do and they write just fine. Yeah. And where that can come in handy is, you know, if you, like Drew said, if you have a broader nib and, you know, you are writing on your own paper that you love and all that, but then you have to write on some much more absorbent paper that you don't have any control over that can be particularly handy as like a little hack is just try flipping your pen over writing with the top of the nib use light pressure because it's not really made to be written like with a lot of pressure that way because you can bend it and stuff like that but um if you use a reasonable amount of pressure then um it will put it'll put down generally less ink uh done that way and it can be a nice little like just kind of get you through and not be bleeding through every paper you're writing on when you have to use somebody else's paper all right. All right, Brian, are you ready for another question that uh, you were required <clears throat> to give a decisive and absolutely confident 100% true answer on? You know me. I am nothing if not concise and decisive with pen-related choices. Ah, yes. You, you, you do love you some brevity. I do. All right. Next question comes from Andy Bart 16 and Andy wants to know, Brian, what is the hottest pen brand right now? Hmm. Like physically the hottest? temperature wise clearly clearly i mean if you're yeah. heating up your pen so that it writes smoother like on ice like hot butter like hot, like butter, hot on, butter you know hot then, butter on wet ice yeah then uh yeah they you know that could be you know maybe a metal pen could probably take more heat so i would recommend like a kaweka supra you know something like that that could probably you could heat it up with like a blowtorch i'm sorry know? andy 
that would be that would that would be kind of painful though so you may need a special glove like a welding glove to accommodate such a such a thing maybe an oven mitt in a pinch could work though it depends how much you heat it up i'm being a total idiot right now um hottest pen brand right now basically like what is the brand that like everybody's talking about right you know honestly dry wrecked my brain a little bit and i this is a tough one for me especially in the days of covid it's been really difficult for like any one brand to be the one to like dominate the scene because everybody's been pretty well disrupted and the number of new products new things it's just logistically it's been so much more difficult for everybody to do everything i feel like i haven't heard like one brand dominating the internet waves the airway the the whatever data waves they're not waves i don't know what i'm talking about airwaves but it's not air anyway um i would say that there's definitely like attention to like startup companies like smaller more independent you know, makers and things like that, but none of them are big enough really where any one of them is dominating, you know, the attention of the fountain pen community. But I feel like there are more kind of independent pen companies. That's, that's much less of a rarity these days. Um, and there are more credible, you know, um, independent makers that are legitimately selling, you know, good products in the fountain pen scene than maybe they're having years past. So that's kind of just like a general trend is there been more those uh, kind of micro manufacturers, if you will. Um, so that's, that's one thought that ran through my mind. If you kind of add them all up, they're probably still not going to be a drop in the bucket compared to any one of the the pilots or the Lamis or the global brands around the world. But, you know, it's definitely something that people talk about. Um, I think for us personally, Sailor has been one of our hottest brands because it's a big brand. It's newer to us. And legitimately, they've just been coming out with a stunning number of, you know, seasonals and special editions and limited editions and things like that. So, I mean, legitimately there's been a lot to be excited about, but then it just timing wise worked out really nicely for us with kind of COVID hitting. And I mean, we literally launched Sailor the week that we had to go remote with COVID last year. The timing was actually quite terrible in that respect, but for us as a whole, like getting to be involved with Sailor with a lot of the new stuff that they were dreaming up, um, you know, that was really kind of cool for us. So for us, certainly a lot of that has been, um, you know, that's probably the one that I'm, that I'm thinking of the most. Um, I would, you know, Pilot's always been a big brand for us. They haven't done as much new hot stuff. So they, they don't get talked about quite as much, maybe in general as being hot, but they definitely continue to be popular so if you want to consider that i think it's it's more of like a, a steady warm you know like a nice like a like a medium low on the stovetop it's still pretty hot like you wouldn't want to put your hand on it maybe i shouldn't say that because you do want to put your hands on pens and here we go back full circle into my hot pens grab, mm-hmm. grab your welding glove and pick up your pen i don't know uh-huh. i'm i'm derailing drew Save me, save me on this yes. question. Um, I would, uh, I would throw Twisby into the mix. Um, I think that okay. as far as buzzworthy pens go, when they launched the swipe, mm. I think that was pretty huge. There were a lot of people that wanted to get their hands on that one, and again, it was it was hot not just because it was a new color or a limited. It was hot because it was inherently very, very different and new. And I feel like they should get extra points on that on the hotness scale. And mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. they also, uh, within the last year, have come out with the Prussian Blue 580 ALR, which was really hot. That one was 
very popular on the social medias. Everybody was taking pictures of theirs, and that was like that was very buzzworthy for a while. Um, that one, then, that one is physically hot. It will actually be warm yeah. to the touch. It's such a yeah. good looking pen. It is such a good looking pen. And then there was the Vac Seven Hundred R Iris, and that one made some waves as well. Again, it was it was very buzzworthy, very popular. And because it was totally new, again, not just a limited color or a limited offering or seasonal only available in North America, nothing like that. It was just, oh my God, no one's done this before. What the heck? So I do feel like Twisby continues to get a lot of hype with their new releases, especially because they're still so very innovative and interesting and different. Yeah, they've not so been I would sleeping. So I would put them they've up. Yeah, I would put them up right right up next to Sailor. I agree with you on Sailor. I think that some of their um, hits, like Wicked Witch, did really well. Um, you know, not to toot our own horn, but our Stealth Green just knocked it out of the park. That was freaking fantastic. So uh, Sailor's had some big wins. So, yeah, I would say Twisby and Sailor probably in the last year, I feel like they've been r- riding a hype train. Yeah, I'm curious, too, if y'all are... St- still listening in this point please let us know in the comments because i i do feel like personally i've been a little more out of touch because frankly just with covid life and my kids and the school and all the stuff i've personally spent a little bit less time kind of browsing social media casually and stuff like that so i'm probably a little more out of touch than i've been in the past with what's going on buzzing on social in the community like i know what's really solid and all that but you know the newest hottest thing that's like up and coming i'm i'm probably a little more out of touch so I would lay me, you know, I trust Drew a little on this one more than me because he's he's spending a little more time on the socials than I am these days. Well, you're definitely right about the the, the small makers. I will I, would, okay. I will say that. Good, yay! <laughs> and you've like you've been to more pen shows than I have in the last year and a half. Yeah, there there's some really great independent makers out there for sure. A lot of people pushing the boundaries on designs and colors, and yeah, I'm excited to see more. Good stuff. All right, next question is from Betsy Clough. What does demo mean when linked to a pen model or a new pen introduction? This is a good, this is a good question because this is, again, probably more of a starter question. But Yeah, yeah, yeah but, it, but it's totally reasonable and it's not mm-hmm. something that it's, it's so basic. Sometimes you're like, well, this, I keep seeing this, but, you know, it's not at that level where someone's going to define it for you. So, you know, um, Demo means demonstrator. Demonstrator means clear, essentially. Um, way back when, I believe, I don't know, you might want to correct me, Brian. I think it was Pelican or one of the older companies created a pen that was literally an, in an effort to demonstrate the inner workings of a pen. Mm-hmm. And it was clear for that reason so that you could see the piston and all of the parts. It was actually labeled with mm-hmm. with the parts. Now, I know, Pel- um, I know Pelican the- for sure had it. I want to say it was in the... 50s, maybe the 40s. Yeah, I, I know that I've seen one with the Pelican. Yeah. In fact, I think they revived I, I know, it kind of recently. I don't know if they were the first to come up with it or that it was like their Yeah, thing. I can't say that for sure either, but that's that. definitely where the terminology originated. It originated mm-hmm. as in an effort to demonstrate the inner workings. And they, this was like a trade show tool where they would say like, hey, here's a demonstration of our fountain pen. And it was clear. Yeah. And then it became a, a desirable type of pen. So then eventually the markings fell off and people now manufacturers now market clear pens or semi-translucent pens as demonstrator pens. So it simply means either transparent or translucent. It could be colored, it could be totally clear or, you know, semi-clear. But uh, demonstrator in the fountain pen world 
means it's a pen that you can see inside of either a lot or a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know how far this term goes back. You know, again, this, there was a demonstrator. I mean, essentially what it was, was a, it was a sales, a pen sales person's tool to go around to pen stores. Cause this is the way that it used to work back in the mid 1900s. Um, there was no internet back then. If you're not familiar with that. Um, there were really not any mail order catalogs or anything. Like if you wanted something, you physically had to go to the store. So uh, pen sales people would go and they would introduce new products and they would talk to the sales people at the store because they were talking to the general public who was looking to buy pens. So it was a demonstration tool for the sales people to be able to talk about the specific engineering and the specific design aspects of the given pen. Um, I honestly don't know. I don't think it was ever intended to be something sold to the public. Uh, I don't know at what point that it became more of an industry term or when they started making pens that were intentionally demonstrator as a marketing term. But I feel like it was not that much before we came on the scene, not to say that we caused it by any means, but I think that the rise of the internet and the rise kind of um, at the same time as a bunch of independent like boutique ink makers and kind of the explosion of lots of different fountain pen ink colors, you know, combine that with some of the visual nature of social media and these types of things has definitely popularized the term demonstrator and certainly led to pens like Twisby where they're very demonstrator forward in their design. So I think that that is a relatively recent thing in terms of actual product development and marketing in the fountain pen world, probably in the last decade or decade and a half. Um, maybe it existed before, but it would have not been a very well-known, well-talked-about thing, you know, kind of back in the day. So you can thank the internet for that, I think. Thank you, internet. Yes, indeed. All right. Brian, for the next question, do you want to finish us off with the final question or do you want me to hit one final one? Yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll finish off the last one here All right. Uh, by asking it here. Um, all right. So this is from the Jason Kelly. The Jason the. Kelly, everybody. We are honored to be in the presence of the Jason Kelly. Are non-sailor inks really going to damage the sailor plated nibs? If no, which ones are thumbs up? Mm. Which ones are good to go? Well, and you can probably broaden this even just beyond <clears throat> Sailor. A lot of pen companies out there will say you should only use our pens or our ink and our pens kind of thing. But anyway. Yeah, and, and the the bottom line to kind of keep in mind when you see language like that, like they're trying to tell you something, right? So that by putting that language in there, the manufacturer is more or less saying, we would rather you not do this. And if the manufacturer is saying that to you, it's always good to keep in mind, especially in terms of post-sale support. If the fine print might indicate that should you use or disclose the fact that you have used other non-that brand ink, you might find yourself in a different support scenario. So keep that in mind. Officially, it's a good idea to abide by the manufacturer's request. Yeah. You know, and that includes pretty much anything in the instructions like read the instructions always because there are going to be elements in there that don't remove the grip section don't unscrew the piston like because if you do a lot of these things you could end up voiding your warranty so read the instructions it is our recommendation to abide by the manufacturer's request mm -hmm. that being said 
Have we ever seen a non-sailor ink damage a sailor nib? Um, I have not. Not I think yet. that I, I you know, I, I have not. And honestly, it's uh, we don't we would not sell any inks that would, you know, intentionally damage any pen that we sell. Like we we go out of our way to make sure that the inks that we sell at the Goulet Pen Company are fountain pen friendly inks. There very well are some inks that are more stain proof, a little bit more rough than others, but even those inks, if used with the proper care and maintenance protocols that we recommend in some of our other videos, are perfectly safe and fine to use as well. So mm-hmm. um, we're not we're not going to sell anything that is harmful to any other thing we sell. That that that's not something we're into. So, um, but uh, yeah, I would or, make sure or, that you pay or attention. I'll say if we do sell anything that maybe requires some extra consideration, you know, for example, shimmering ink has particulate in it and you are for certain going to have a potential for more flow issues in any given pen with an ink that has a particular in it than you would with a purely a dye-based ink. You know, that's kind of a blanket statement you make, but it's not like, oh my gosh, if you put Diamine Shimmer-tastic in your sailor pen, it's going to melt in your hands. Obviously, if that was the case, we would not sell those two things together, you know? So it's not like it's that dramatic. Um, the thing I'll say is like, you, you know, you can, you can interpret this scenario here as like a money grab for like, oh, sailor just wants to sell more ink, you know? So they're going to tell me sort of like the car deal, you know, the, the, whatever car car that you buy is like, you should only get it fixed it to the dealer because right. you know, that's like how they make a lot of their money. That's not really how it works in the fountain pen world. And I've talked to a number of people pretty high up at most of these companies you know, maybe it was that marketed that way at some point decades ago, but people are pretty practical these days. It honestly comes from a good place for all the manufacturers that I've ever talked to. It's not because they just want to sell more of their ink. Let's be real. Any pen company, they're not like raking it in based off their ink sales. Like, I mean, look at Lamy as an example. They have well, before they came out with their crystal inks, they had, what, seven colors? Like, they're not For a long shoveling time. ink out the door, you know. But really where it comes, it comes from a good place. They want to warranty their products. It's not that if you use any other ink that, you know, it's going to just immediately destroy things. But the problem is there are so many different types of ink that are out there, including ones that people are, like, homebrewing up themselves and mixing different inks together and... It's not well known. There's not MSDS sheets and there's not a lot of stuff to know exactly what was used. So it's more that these manufacturers are like, well, we don't really know what the heck you've put in there unless we know that it was ours because that's the only one we really have control over. Yeah, it's about eliminating variables. That's exactly it. So again, you're really just trying to eliminate fringe case scenarios here. They don't want somebody to come in having put, you know bacon grease in their pen and then get upset at the manufacturer because their pen is not flowing well or whatever and they're like well what did you put in here and they're like well i put bacon grease and they're like well that's yeah. you, i mean you know, I've, I've, put, uh, yeah, I've put the inside of a glow stick inside of a twisby eco and it melted it it wasn't it wasn't pretty oh it also it exploded not well yeah yeah no not yeah. a good idea yes exactly so it's it's like yeah so there's 
plenty of fountain pen inks that are just fine to use in your pens. But for logistical and, you know, somewhat legal cover your butt kind of scenarios, the manufacturer can't say, well, it's okay if you use this ink and that ink and that ink and that ink and that ink from other brands because they don't know what's in them. They don't know what their quality control is like. They could change them. They, you know, they don't have any control over that. So they just recommend the things that they can control, which is their own inks. So that's where we as retailers and other bloggers and other people that are actually using and testing these things all the time, that's where we can kind of come in and be like, yes, okay, that's like the letter of the law. Here's the spirit of the law. And like, yes, use it up. But, you know, just understand that if if something goes off the rails and you end up having a situation, you know, it, it could be questioned from the manufacturer standpoint yeah. if you're using a bunch of crazy stuff in your pen. But by all means, if that's the, you're living your best life and you want to put crazy stuff in your pen, nobody's stopping you. It's your pen. You can do whatever you want. You know, you just have to understand the the implications of that potentially. Yeah, and if you do want to just kind of play it safe, obviously you can stick with the same ink. Sailor in particular is not a difficult brand to stick with because they have a ton of different inks, especially yeah. with the addition of their Ink Studio line. I mean, like you could you you have everything you need right there essentially. Yeah. Um, but if you did want to branch out and you know have some different brands inks, you can always read reviews. And mm -hmm. uh, our website, I know, has a ton of great reviews on there. We've got sliders for ratings and things like that. So you could always, if you've got an ink that you've got your eye on, check out the reviews. If a bunch of people are saying that it's really funky and weird and did weird stuff, just steer clear of that one and go check out another one with a similar shade. You, you can sort by color on our website. It's not going to be hard to find an analog to something that uh, you've got your eye on. So there's probably going to be one out there that is a good fit for you. Yeah. Um, Roshizuku, like Brian has said in past episodes, is a really calm easy to clean easy to clean brand and uh urban is another great brand that has uh, very few ingredients in there they might not be the most vibrant crazy looking inks in the world but that's because they're more simplistic in their ingredients so we presume again like brian said we don't have the msds for any of these so right. we don't know exactly what's in them but um it has been it's historically known as an easy to clean gentle brand yeah, and uh, to kind of, you know, wrap it up and bring it home here, you brought some great points through that I can speak a little more broadly. Uh, you know, if, if pretty much every pen company, which, you know, the vast majority of them are, who are selling, you know, any extensive line of ink along with an extensive line of pens, you know, they're all going to recommend using their ink in their pens pretty much um, for warranty purposes. But there's also like safety and numbers there. So you can assume that if every pen company is doing that, if you want to play it safe, just stick with all of the inks that are made by all the pen companies. And most of those inks are going to generally be on the safer side. So it's where you get into the boutique things and the stuff that's really pushing the envelope from boutique ink makers. That's like you're a little more, you know, living, more fringe. living on the edge and that's fine. By all means, live it up. Um, but, you know, I think if you go with, if you're using a sailor pen and you're putting pilot ink or pelican ink or Lamy ink, it's still going to be a pretty safe bet. You're not going to have a whole lot of problems. But to, to really hit back home on the question, I've never heard of a, the plating coming off of a nib. The plating, it's you're like rhodium plated. This is like an extremely durable, precious metal that is being like some kind of electroplated or it's not just like spray paint, like lacquer chrome paint like you would have on your car bumper. It's like electro fused precious metal there's there's not going to be a lot of inks that are going to cause any problems especially with a reputable brand like sailor so i don't think you have to actively be worried about that most of the time it's going to be flow issues that you're going to see with any ink and like pen combination things that would happen but there you go 
All right, that is all we got. Drew, I would say, I mean, we did 14 questions in an hour and 40 minutes or so. Yeah, not bad. I don't know what that math is, but I think we got under our eight and a half minute per question average. So that's pretty cool. But anyway, we don't really have anything more interesting to close it out with other than you should definitely go check out some of the things we mentioned here on gulepens.com. Like, comment, subscribe, share this video with others. If y'all like this Q&A format, you know, we kind of had a thought like, hey, maybe we'll do this. We can catch up on some questions. You know, it's still prep on our side, but we can record them in advance. That way, instead of in the future, if we are taking time off or whatever, which we do from time to time, um, we don't have to like be missing weeks and weeks. Maybe we can double up. So I don't know. We'll see. This is fun to record. Doing two in a week is definitely more work, but we'll see how we feel <laughs> after we close, turn off the cameras. If we both collapse, we'll be like, I don't know if we'll do that again. Um, but anyway, let us know what you think. Love hanging out with you all, and right on. <laughs>